I want to start, though, with a, with a quote that I heard years ago and has echoed in my mind. It's a quote by John Stott on humility. And he says this, At every stage of our Christian life, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Every stage of our Christian life. For the, for the brand new believer, and in fact, the one just coming to Christ, Humility is his greatest friend. For, for the one who's been in Christ for decades, humility is her greatest friend. It, it, is, it is always our greatest friend because it's always a great need of ours. And yet pride is always a, a great and looming enemy that hinders what the Lord would do in our life. Wherever we're at in this spectrum of growth as a believer, I want to run through kind of quickly here a barrage of passages that show us the significance of humility. Few, few topics get as much real estate in Scripture as humility. It is the humble we see in Scripture that God, that God sees. Isaiah 66, 2. But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. God says he he sees. Now, of course, God knows and sees everything, but there's a relational dynamic of this, seeing to bless, seeing to care for, that it's the humble that God sees. It's the humble that God saves. Psalm 76, 9, one part of it says, God is committed to save all the humble of the earth. He, he saves the humble. It is the humble that God accepts. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, which is another way of talking about humility. It's the one who is not despised, but, but accepted. It is the humble that God pardons. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and will hear their land. It is the humble. It is the humble. It's the humble. It's the humble that God lives with, that dwells with. I dwell on, high, on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Isn't that remarkable? That God dwells on a high and holy place, but, but also with the humble. In the same passage, he revives the humble. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite, he's with them and he, and he revives them. There's a spiritual nourishment that he does as he revives the humble. It's the humble that God leads, Psalm 25, 9. He leads the humble in justice. The second part of that shows that he teaches, and he teaches the humble his way. The nature of Hebrew poetry is that these two are explaining and modifying each other. He's leading them. He's leading them by teaching them. It's the humble that he does that with. It's the humble that he gives grace to. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This verse hints at what you're probably also aware of. We could have a whole other list here about pride, couldn't we? We've been, in a sense, kind of looking at the positive side. What does he do for the humble? We could also look at a list of how does he respond to the proud? God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. He, in some way, works against their pride but he gives grace to the humble. And ultimately, he will exalt the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And of course, there's many, many more that we could look at. And yet, 
we can read those passages, we can affirm the importance of that, and yet I think often we can be like David when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan after his sin with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, and Nathan comes and he gives this analogy to try to bring conviction to David. Initially, David doesn't see it until Nathan says, you, you, you're the man, you're, you're the man who's doing this. We can often be blind to our own, our own pride and our own need for humility as well. Pride is one of those things that is far easier to see in others than ourselves, isn't it? But even if we do see it, and even if we read through these verses and affirm that, question often remains of how can we, how can we practically grow in humility? If humility is this virtue that is, it is stirred up within the person. God graces, God sees, God dwells with, God revives. How do we, how do we grow in humility? Few things are as frustrating as knowing that we need to change but feeling unable to or unsure of how to change. That's what brings us to this passage. In this passage, we're going to see four ways that we can practically grow in humility. Humility is our greatest friend. We're going to see four ways that we can practically grow in humility. It's part of this ongoing section, now that we've seen for many, many weeks on division within the body and what he's come back to several times is the way that division can be rooted in, in pride and, and arrogance. And he comes back to that again now. And in this teaching on it, he, he will give these four aspects, four ways that we can grow in humility. So with that introduction in place, now let's look at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So now these things, brethren... I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become king so that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Four ways to grow in humility, four practical ways. And the first we see in verse six is to apply the word to yourself first. Applying the word to yourself first. Look at verse six. It says, these things I have figuratively applied. In other words, I've applied them to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. What, what things? Well, all the stuff he's just been talking about. And so in the immediate context, if you recall, he's given 
three different kind of analogies of how believers should view themselves. Leaders in particular, but all believers in general. Uh, the, the examples he gave, the first part of chapter 3 of workers in a field. And he talked about how one waters, one plants, but it's, but it's God who produces the growth. Uh, then he talks about builders of a building, building with things that last, that please the builder and that endure over time. Uh, and then he talked about the, the language of servants and stewards that must be found faithful. And so now he's saying, all these things I want you to know, I'm not just saying that you need to do. He says, I'm applying them to myself and to Apollos. It's, it's true of us first. I'm not just saying it of you. He says, I, I want you to know I'm seeing myself as a worker in a field, but the field belongs to God. As a builder, but the building is God's. As a steward of, of what has been entrusted to me from God, it's, it's his Friends, that is the language of of humility, of not just seeing the way all these things apply really well to to this person, right? Or this I'm trying to be careful, I'm not actually pointing at specific people really here. (laughs) But I mean, it's a lot easier to see that, isn't it? Like, man, my husband really needs to hear this. Or man, my my friend at church, boy, they I hope they're listening here. And and miss the the way it applies to us first. So by this example here that he's intentionally pointing out. He says, I want you to know I'm applying this to myself first. So I think we're seeing that example for, for us as well. This is the example we see, for example, in Ezra, a great teacher in the Old Testament, is that people were coming back to the land after being in a period of exile. And Ezra was one of the ones who came back to teach the people. And I want you to notice the way that he describes this, or the way it's described as he prepares to teach the people. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. It, it's not a new observation for me. Perhaps you've heard it before, but, but these four significant steps and the order matters of, of setting his heart to study. It, it, there's a heart behind it, not just mere mechanics, a heart that wants to study and submit to the word. So it's a heart and then it's a, study of it, to know what the word says, to to understand it, to handle it accurately and rightly, but then to practice it so that he's living it out himself. Because it had been a period in Israel's history where they had walked away from the observance of God's laws. And he needed to call them back, but he needs to make sure that he's following it himself. And then he's teaching it. And then he's teaching it. Paul's modeling a similar thing. Says I'm applying it to myself, as well as teaching it here. So, friends, if you are involved in any type of teaching ministry, and not everybody is, but it, but if you are, if it's perhaps in Sunday school, uh, or junior church, Awana youth group, small group, even one-on-one discipleship, uh, filling a pulpit in a rural church on times, preaching here, um, teaching your own children, any context there, this pattern is the same. It's, it's applying it to self and then looking for ways to help others apply it to themselves. By, by doing that, look in verse 6 again. He says, why is he doing this? There's a so that phrase in the middle. He says, I've applied it to myself so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Your translation, depending on how it's worded, there might even have that in quotes of something like, do not go beyond what is written or do not exceed what is written. Uh, because some believe this was it's kind of like a motto of the early church. Don't go beyond what's written. 
Don't go beyond what's written. Let's, let's stick with what the, word, what the word has to say. It's likely a play off of the way Old Testament quotes were often introduced by saying, it is written, and then the quoting from it. So it's our job, of course, most prominently as leaders, but as believers as a whole, to, to not add to the word, but to just stick with what the word says, to, to present it, to hold to it. Like Bereans, it's, it's your job, as you hear the word taught, whether from me Sunday after Sunday or from others, to, to go back and see, is this, is this accurate? Is this what the word actually says? Um, Acts 17.11 affirms believers who, who did that. It also says of those believers, they received the word with great eagerness, right? So they weren't merely kind of snipers from the back, right? trying, to, trying to criticize. They received it with eagerness, and then they compared it to the word to make sure it was true, right? That ought to be our mindset. When we exceed what is written, we do that by, perhaps with legalism, adding human commands and giving them the weight of God's word that maybe go beyond what scripture actually says. We do it when we bind Christians' conscience with debatable applications going more than what scripture says, but saying no, no, no true believer could. And then we, we put some category there that's beyond what the word actually says. That's maybe an extrapolation that we've come to. The, the challenge for all of us is not to go beyond what is written because that is an inherently prideful act to, to say that the word's not enough. I need to add my opinion, my preference, and give it the same weight as scripture. Humility doesn't do that. Humility applies the word to self and then is committed to not exceeding what the word has to say. So if we're to grow in humility, we apply it to ourself and then we're, we limit to what the word actually says. Next, we see blessings as gifts that we've received. See blessings as gifts that you've received. If we're trying to cultivate humility, guard against pride, guard against arrogance, we, we see that the things we have have been given to us from God. Look at verse 7 again. He asks a series of three questions. It says, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What do you have that you didn't receive? And this cuts against the grain of the way that we often view success, doesn't it? We, we typically view success as something that we've accomplished on our own, that if we're successful, it's because we've, we've worked harder, we've studied hard, we've disciplined ourselves. And the thing is, that's often true in a way. And there's other passages that would speak to that. We, we shouldn't see this statement in here as an excuse for laziness. We see statements in Proverbs like, like this, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Okay, so it's, it's linking diligence with prosperity. And we see that practically in life. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. So these passages, and there's many more, especially in Proverbs, we certainly see there. And so this, this phrase in 1 Corinthians 4 isn't meant to just negate all of that. But... Even if we are successful, 
academically, athletically, financially, professionally. And there's likely hours put in there that have led to that and personal diligence. Consider all the things that are outside of your control, even with that. Family that you were born into. The intelligence you inherited. Nurture and care that you received or perhaps didn't receive as a child. Country that you were born into or moved to. Education you received, medical conditions that you had or didn't have that were out of your control, the encouragement or model of discipline that you had by somebody else in your life. An athlete may indeed be successful uh, on the court or on the field, and, and they can maybe link that success to extra time in the gym, study and film, uh, you know, going to camps in the summertime, but born into another country, they might just be a really athletic child soldier. Right? Like there's opportunities that they had that were outside of their control. And we can see that in so many areas of life. And so this truism here of what do you have that you did not receive, it should lead to humility as we, as we see that even things that we've cultivated and disciplined ourselves and worked towards, that there's so much of it that's out of our hands that we just have to say, God, I, I thank you for this. I thank you for this. Pride says... Now, the success is all about me. It's from me, it's to me, it's for me. And humility says, now, success is about the Lord. It's, it's from him, it's to him, it's for him. Whether it's financial success, athletic, academic, whatever it might be. It's a perspective that we see modeled in 1 Corinthians 29. In this, or not, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles, sorry, 29. As the people had gathered money to build a temple. And they had given generously, and likely money that they had earned and, and built up. And, and as they gathered, and, and David was, was seeing this wealth that would be used later by his son to, to build the temple. And he prays. I want you to notice the way he prays here. He says, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to, to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand uh, we have given you. It's this idea that, yes, even as we're giving generously, and even as that generosity that we're able to do maybe comes from labor that we've put into work or a business or whatever it might be, and it's, it's prospered, to say, God, we still see that this comes from you, and we thank you for it. And again, it's not an excuse for laziness, but it is a recognition that it all comes from him, and that cuts against our pride. Now, the primary context, though, of this is important. It's a, it's a general statement, and I think it's true in the way we've talked about it, but the primary context is cutting against their spiritual pride and it's a reminder that spiritually what do they have that they didn't receive right their their very salvation and forgiveness is a gift that's received through faith in Christ their spiritual gifts that they are tempted to boast in we'll find out later in, in 1 Corinthians their gifts right so we call them spiritual gifts and it's not something to boast in it's something that's been given to them by the Lord this phrase, for what it's worth, those of you that may have bent towards church history, this phrase, what do you have that you did not receive, 
was one of the drumbeat phrases that Augustine would use against Pelagius in the fourth century. Uh, and in, this, in that context, Pelagius was arguing that no, people are inherently good or at least a blank slate and can choose to do good on their own and they can merit God's favor in some way. There, That's what we call Pelagianism. And Augustine, in counter to that, was arguing for the pervasive presence of sin in our life that makes us unable to do those things on our own apart from God's active work of grace in our life. And he would come back again and again to this quote, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received? To show that we are debtors to God and apart from his work in our life, we would be unable even to do the good things that we do. What do we have that we have not received? So for building on this, how can we grow practically in humility this is another aspect of it. It's, it's applying the word to ourself first. It's recognizing that what we have, they're, they're gifts. Even if we've worked hard for some things in a certain way, it's still it's a gift that we can praise God for. And then don't make present what is still future. I'll show you what I mean here. Look at verse 8. You've got to notice dripping irony and sarcasm, Okay? And so if you're a high schooler looking for an excuse to justify sarcasm, here you go, right? <laughs> no, no, of course, there's a lot of ways that we use sarcasm that's in a, in a harmful way. But Paul is using it here to try to get their attention. He says, you are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so we might reign with you. He, this is essentially what they're claiming and kind of boasting in is, is that they're doing great. They're wealthy. They're kings in some sort. I think ultimately, by, by saying you, you've already got this, and then when he describes his suffering in a moment, we read through it already, but we'll look at it in more detail in a moment. He says, even now, no, I'm suffering. I'm suffering until now. It, it, it's this contrast between what they think they have now or ought to have now, but Paul's saying, no, that's, that's for later. That's when we're with the Lord in glory. When he sets up his kingdom or we're with him in glory, that, that's when these things will be true, but, but it's not the case now. Don't make present what is still future. Christians do look ahead to the reign of Christ on earth at the very end of Revelation as it pleased for the Lord Jesus to come, and we're looking forward to him coming and setting up his kingdom Look forward to a new heaven and new earth, ultimately, where righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.13 tells us there's these things that are future. There's some aspects of that that are present. Right? Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13 says, if we've come to Christ, we've been transferred into the kingdom of his son. There's some ways in which we're already kind of in this kingdom in a spiritual sense, but it's his ultimate kingdom that is yet still to come. It is future. And they're acting as if that ought to be now. Um, this is the fundamental error of what we call the prosperity gospel of, no, you're a child of the king now and you ought to live like it. And Abraham and David and Solomon and Job, well, at least at the end of the book of Job, right, were wealthy and it was a sign of blessing. And so if God's blessing you now, he's going to bless you financially. And if you're not blessed financially, then he must not really be blessing you. And there may be a sin in your life or you're not trusting him enough. Or there's all these extrapolations that come from that. And it's pernicious in 
many circles. But that is trying to make now what is still future. Right? In Revelation 21.4, it does tell us there will come a day that there's no more pain and there's no more crying and no more death. But today is not that day. Right? It's, not, it's not now. Um, don't confuse what is future glory with present experience and assume that's going to be the case now. If you want a, a theology term for that, it's what we call an, an over-realized eschatology. That's not in the fill-in-the-blank because we'd have to really spell <laughs> carefully there, right? An over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is referring to this theology of kind of the end times, the last times. And over-realized eschatology means we're trying to take these things that are future promises and make them true now. And, and that we're going to have that now and we're going to have financial prosperity and health and these things now that God has not promised for the now. So one aspect of humility is recognizing that there's suffering now. Certainly blessings and things we can be grateful for, but we shouldn't assume our experience now ought to be what God is promising for the future. And with that, the corollary is don't assume that suffering is only for others. Don't assume that suffering is only for others. I believe that's the point of what he goes on to say in verses 9 to 13. They're taking pride in their apparent prosperity and thinking this must be a sign of God's blessing and something to boast in and taking credit for it themselves and, and he's saying well it's not my experience my experience is one of suffering he says I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all as men condemned to death we have become a spectacle and the word for spectacle there is, is where we get our, our word theater from that, that, people, that people watch and the language is of a Slaves from a conquered army brought into a, um, I'm dropping the term, an arena to, be watched, to watch them be killed by wild animals. It was a practice of the time. And he's saying, it's like that's what we are. As apostles, it's, it's like we're these last ones brought in. We're fools, but you're prudent. Again, the irony's there. He's saying, you're claiming to be wise. Okay, well, we must be fools. You're claiming to be strong. Well, we must be weak. And then verses 11 and on, he describes real suffering of hunger and thirst, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, toil working with our hands, which was something that the, the Greeks assumed was too menial for them. He's saying, no, we, we work with our hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endured. He talks about being slandered. Even at the end of verse 13, Look at the words he uses there. He says, we have become as the scum of the world, as the dregs of all things. Scum and dregs are synonyms for the same thing. It's, it's basically what's cleaned off when you're cleaning something else. You scrape off your shoes, and it's the dregs. It's the scum. You sweep up the floor, and what you're sweeping up and tossing, it's this word for scum or for dregs. He says, ah, that's what we are. That's what we are. It's not a, it's not a bubbly and, and bright description but he's describing his, his own suffering and kind of challenging them. If you're, communi- if, you're co- if you're connecting God's blessing with this material gain and easy life, God, God may give that. But if you're connecting it, saying that must be what it is, how, how do you evaluate my life is essentially what he's asking them. How do you evaluate the suffering that I'm experiencing? Paul's advocating here for a Christ-like response to suffering. 
Notice in response to the suffering, in particular look at verse 12. It says, when we are reviled, meaning attacked with our words, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. Conciliate means to try to gently and kindly work it out, in a sense. I don't know about you guys, but that is not my natural response to slander, right? I mean, if somebody you feel like slanders you, they lie about you, they say something wrong and attacking to others, it's your natural response to try to gently and kindly work that out. He says that's what we're called to. Paul is saying that's what we try to do, and in a moment, a few verses later, he invites them to follow his example. So it's for all of us. This is what Jesus modeled. Remind you of well-known words, likely, in Isaiah 53, Prophetic words, looking, about, looking ahead to Christ, describes him in this way, Isaiah 52, verses 2 and 3. He has no stately form or majesty that I should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We know that Jesus suffered, and Paul often describes the Christian life as suffering with him. Romans 8, 17, for example, we're jumping right into context here, and I know that. But notice the way he talks about suffering. He talks about us as children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also glorify with him. This first half of the verse, some people would want to kind of cover the rest and say, yeah, we're, we're heirs, we're, we're kings. We should live like it, we should... Experience these blessings, well, we're heirs that are sometimes called to suffer, and to suffer with him. In Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Yes, the power of God at work in our life, but sometimes through, through suffering, through suffering. The call to Christ is an invitation to suffer. And called to leadership, all the more so. So humility recognizes that. Humility sees that suffering can come, sometimes because of the gospel, sometimes just because life is hard, and it comes, it comes medically, it comes relationally, it comes in lots of different ways. Humility doesn't say, that's for other people. Why is that coming to my life? What did I do to deserve this? Right, that's the language of pride. Right? But... Humility says, God, I'll accept. I don't, I don't want to suffer, but I'll accept what comes from your hand. How do we apply this to our lives? Let me give you a couple ways. How does this apply to my life? The first is just to ask this question. Do my expectations about life align more with the Corinthians or with Paul? Someone I read this week pointed this out, and i got to tell you guys, it was, it was cutting to me. You read this passage, and you think, okay, if we were in a room, there's Paul and the Corinthians there, and Paul is talking to the Corinthians about this. Like, hey, you guys are acting like you're rich, like you're kings, like you're wise, and, and I guess I'm here suffering. We would assume that we would be standing there with Paul and be like, yeah, that's right, Corinthians. That's what you guys, and where in fact, it's a lot more likely that we'd be standing with the Corinthians. And and then we might have this expectation that 
life is easy, not, not suffering, like Paul has talked about, that we're wise and that we're powerful and this expectation of all that we ought to have received or do receive in, in, a, in a prideful way. And, and we need to evaluate and say, no, I, I'm perhaps expecting things that I ought not to. Um, some things that are blessings that we can be grateful for. It's not, it's not wrong or we don't need to feel guilty about living in a country that's been relatively free and, and prosperous. I mean, we're so prosperous that we, we name our shopping days, right? Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I mean, those are, those are things that wealthy countries do, right? And, and we shouldn't be, feel guilty or like uh, that's an inherently wrong thing, but it's, it's a recognition as we look that, man, we like we've been in a prosperous place and there's believers around the world that aren't experiencing that. And, and we need to guard against pride that looks at somebody in, a believer in poverty, either in our country or in another country, and assume that they're less spiritual, less blessed, less mature, you know, some, something like that, because we're successful and, and, and they're not. This language of what do we have that we have not received, and recognizing all the blessings around us that has led to these particular blessings. We likely haven't suffered for the gospel in the way that Paul describes here of hunger and hopelessness and being, or homelessness and being poorly clothed and roughly treated, and we should be very grateful for that. We don't need to have a martyr's complex that tries to invent persecution where it's not or strives after it, but, but do I expect to be free from suffering? Or after listening to our, our, our brother um, a couple weeks ago who, who shared his experience in a closed country, of, of suffering, do we recognize that that could come for us and, and that that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be unjust for God to allow that and that the believers all around the world throughout history have suffered? Um, what are my expectations about life? And, and then second, what have I received that I can thank God for and steward well? The language of stewardship, again, came a few verses earlier in our passage. We saw it last week. Look at verse, verses one and two again. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Stewardship is applied first to these, what he calls the mysteries of God. It's the, it's the gospel. Uh, not that the gospel is something mysterious, but it was something that was clearly revealed in the word and we're to, we're to steward it, we're to hold it carefully, we're to share it, we're to, Trust in Christ ourselves. But then spreading out as this truism in verse, verse 7 is applied to lots of areas. What do we have that we can thank God for? Whether it's natural intelligence or drive or athletic ability or personal charm or good looks or musical ability or a tenderness or a wealth or spiritual gifts. Anything that we can be grateful for and to recognize the temptation towards pride in those things rather than praising God for it and seeking to steward it well for his glory. 